Well, good morning again, church. Um, this past week, I uh, played golf with uh, my best friend, Luke. We, went, we met over in uh, Minnesota and played uh, golf all day for a few days. We played at two golf courses this week. And the first course is a course that my friend Luke used to work at for years. And when I'd go up to hit my tee shot, he would say, okay, Troy, watch out for that hill over there's a, a sand bunker, there's a pond. And he could tell me every single thing on the golf course. So when I would get up there and I was worried, I would say, Luke, where do I aim? And he would say, aim right here. I had a trustworthy, reliable friend and it ended up, ended up being good for me. But we also played at another golf course that neither one of us knew anything about. So what we do, we show up, we grab a, they have these maps of the course you can grab. So kind of an outline, the shape of the course, how long it is. And we'd get up there and we hit some shots and boy, they looked beautiful. And then when we drive up to find our ball, we realized that there was a pond there that we hid in or a sand bunker. And we realized that the maps that we had were not very trustworthy for us. And it paid, it paid. And I didn't show the pond, it didn't show the bunker, everything looked safe. And yet I trusted in the wrong thing and it became my downfall for golf. Because there's a huge advantage to having trustworthy information, to having a trustworthy friend, something to rely completely upon. Now, in the grand scheme of life, golf games matter little. But in moments of crisis, in a moment where you have to make a decision in life, the question of who do we trust for wisdom matters the most. In a time where you feel like the circumstances of life and you're on shaky ground and you're not sure what to do, the question of who can I trust right now is of utmost importance, right? To trust in someone, to trust in something is to rely fully on that person, to put your weight, your entire weight onto someone. And I believe that illustration of a chair is a great illustration. Right now you are sitting in a chair, you're sitting in a pew. You probably didn't think a thing about it. You just sat down, but you are right now trusting in that pew. You're trusting in that chair to literally hold your weight, and you expect to not fall and crash to the ground. When you, what are you expecting to hold you secure and to give you strength when your doctor says to you, your cancer is here? What are you putting your emotional weight on in that moment when you get your diagnosis? Or when you drop off your kid at college for the first time and you're anxious and you're scared and you're fearful of what's going to happen to them when they're gone from you, what are you putting your weight on as you drive home? Or maybe you're in life and you're unsatisfied, you feel a longing that your life should be way better than it is, and you have no meaning, you have no satisfaction. Well, what are you putting the weight of your life on? We trust in things, we trust in people, we trust in systems. The entire history of our world is humanity trusting in things, trusting in things to hold them safe and secure. And that's what our passage today in the book of Isaiah is fundamentally about. It's about trust. And we're going to see that theme throughout the 10 chapters we're studying today. So please open up to Isaiah. We're going to be studying chapters 28 to 37 today, but we're going to first read in Isaiah 31. If you have a pew Bible, please grab it. It's on page 592. 
We're not actually going to have um, words up on the screen this morning. So I'd love for you to have a Bible as we'll be flipping around a little bit. Please open up to Isaiah chapter 31. We've seen, and we're going to see again today, that the people of God encounter lots of trouble here. In this time, almost 2,700 years ago, the people of God are surrounded by enemy nations. There's temptations to forsake their God and turn to other idols. And we're not going to read from every one of these 10 chapters this morning, but look just at verse 1 of chapter 31. This is where God is going to be showing the people of God their big error, their big problem, and it summarizes our entire sermon this morning. So let's read the word of the Lord, chapter 31, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes this morning that we may see you as trustworthy, as the most reliable, as our biggest help. Sanctify us, Spirit help us. Amen. In these ten chapters of Isaiah, God wants us to consider where the object of our trust is. And he does not mince words. He says, there is a right object to whom we trust, and the answer is God. And there's a wrong answer to who we trust in, and that's everything else but God. That's what these 10 chapters are about. And I want to give you what we call the main point, so you know where we're headed this morning. The main point of these 10 chapters in the sermon is this, that there is no more important question then in whom do you ultimately trust? There is no more important question than this. In whom do you ultimately trust? And there is no worthier answer than this. The king of the world. Most important question you could ever ask is who do you trust? And the most important, the most right, the most worthy answer to that question is the king of the world. Now, most of the book of Isaiah, if you've been reading along with us, you're going to see it's been written in what we call poetic prophecy. A lot of imagery, a lot of metaphors. It can be very hard at times to read this book of the Bible. But today, we're mostly going to be reading two of these chapters that focus more on historical narrative, stories and characters and conflict. But our sermon is going to be divided three ways this morning, just so that you have a kind of a boundary. First of all, we're going to look at the problem that's going on. There's an actual real issue happening in the people of God. Second of all, we're going to look at the wrong answer to that problem. The people of God look to the wrong answer. But thirdly, we'll finish it by looking at the right answer, which is trusting in the king. So first, the problem. I want you to flip over one more time in your Bible towards chapter 36, page 596. I want to read these five verses that reveal the problem that's facing the people of God. Verse 1 in chapter 36. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshika from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a, law, with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there he came out to him, Elakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. 
And the Rabshika said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? The people of God, the people of Judah, we see in verse 1, that the enemy king of Assyria is attempting to attack them. This king with the weird name Sennacherib has begun to overpower and overtake the cities and villages of Judah. And this enemy king, this Assyrian army, is on their way to destroy the capital city of Jerusalem. So the king of Assyria sends a messenger to the king of Judah, the people of God, and he says to him, On whom do you rest for security? You little people of Judah, we are coming to overtake your city. Where are you going to turn to for trust, for protection, for safety? You might as well give up now. This is a taunt. Assyria is on their way to wipe out the people of God. And in whom are the people of God going to trust? Because Hezekiah, his nation, they're weak. They're outnumbered. They're overpowered. They have little resources. And when the sound of enemy footsteps can be heard, what is Judah going to do? Because their armies are going to be wiped out. Their walls will be torn down. In whom will they trust? And the great problem here is Assyria. It's hard for us sometimes to find ourselves here in the Bible, but imagine that you are looking out at armies coming and you know you might be moments away from losing your land. Your houses may be burned. Your children may be killed. Your family name will be gone. The people of Judah are about to be eliminated from existence. So what can they do? I believe that every one of us here can relate to this people of Judah because fundamentally, we as humans have troubles and we have problems, things that we have to find safety and refuge from. Now, first, every human being will have to deal with the problem of their own sin. The most fundamental trouble and problem that we face is sin. And you may scoff at that. You may reject that. How dare he say, I have sin? But we are all creatures whom we find our existence in God, we were created by him and we have rebelled against him and we're living our lives in our city and our own sin is creeping up around us, consuming us, attacking us, and we don't even know that it's happening. We have chosen to live by our own rules, our own values, our own behaviors, and that sin, that rejection of living a life for God is going to ruin us. And we as humans attempt to find meaning and happiness and satisfaction apart from God. We begin to trust in money to provide security for us. We trust in success or beauty to give ourselves satisfaction. We turn to things like drugs or alcohol or sex or entertainment to feel the pleasures of life. We begin to trust in these things to give us what we want. And that's rebellion against God. And not only is our sin attacking us, but one day we have to stand before the holiness of God. And what are we going to bring to him? 
a history of not trusting in Him, but trusting in these lesser created things. And all of us have sin. It's a trouble. It's a problem. And just how the Assyrian army was creeping up on Israel, that's our sin with us. But beyond this problem of sin, all humans deal with the troubles of this world, circumstances and hardships. Even if you are a Christian who has found freedom from your sin, you are still going to deal with the things of life. Sicknesses, cancer, heart attacks, dementia. Relational problems like breakups and divorces, parent and child conflict. There will be death and loss. We could list a whole myriad of things that seem to trouble and oppose us. So when those things do oppose us, when they begin to come at us and we hear their footsteps or we see their reality, where do you put the weight of your trouble and your sorrow and your fear on? Do you believe you can handle it all on your own? Or do you turn to a distraction to soothe the pain? Where do we turn when the problems of life come? Where do you rest your weight? I remember when my grandpa Paul was diagnosed with bone cancer. I was a young teenager. And I mentioned they have all these doctors and these specialists, and he was going from appointment to appointment. He was put on a certain diet, and there'd be seasons where he was feeling pretty good. Things seemed to be normal, but then there are more seasons of, of tiredness and exhaustion, and pain would hit him to a point where he could barely get out of bed. He was so weak. And back and forth, appointments and medicine and technology and diets, all of these things. But eventually, he got to a point where he stated, this is going to be the end for me. He knew that cancer was going to be his downfall. And I soon realized that even as a young teenager, that we can have the best doctors, the best treatments, the best diets, the best technology, and yet we fully can't depend our life on those things. Now, I respect and love, and we need doctors, and we need chemo and radiation, and we need diets, and we need plans, but fundamentally, the only person that we can trust on to sustain our life, to give us health, to give us healing, to keep us going from today to tomorrow is God alone. There is nothing absolutely trustworthy besides God. So as these people of God are about to be attacked by Assyria, where do they turn to for safety, for refuge? Where do they put their trust in? Well, they chose the wrong thing. And this is point two, the wrong answer. As Assyria is threatening Judah, Judah runs to another nation. They run to the nation of Egypt. And this is wrong on so many levels, but first of all, Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the existence and history of the people of God, God has promised Israel this. He says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Essentially, he says, as you follow me, as you trust in me, I will take care of you. And even if enemies are surrounding you, I, the Lord your God, will care for you. But the problem, and the same problem we have, we forget the words of God. 
We live as if the words of God are not actually real. So Israel here, in the moment of panic and despair, rather than remember, God will care for us, they run off to another nation. They run off to the nation of Egypt. They think if we get Egypt on our side, it will be Israel and Egypt, and then maybe we can defend ourselves against Assyria. But not to spoil the history lesson here, it fails miserably. Egypt crumbles, the people of God crumble, cities are destroyed. This plan is unreliable. But I want you in your Bible to look at chapter 30 of Isaiah, verses 1 to 3, and see the words of God that he speaks against his own people for their false trust. Look at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 30. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. King Hezekiah, the king of the people of God, ran to Egypt for a political alliance. They ran to make a pact, a treaty with a pagan nation to protect themselves from another pagan nation. And the verse we read early on, chapter 31, verse 1 says that the people of God went down to Egypt to rely on Egypt's chariots and Egypt's horses. They sought out help from an enemy Nation. Now, I want us to think through the story of the Old Testament. If you this afternoon sit down and you read from Genesis all the way up to Isaiah, and then you read this passage that we just read, you would be shocked at the people of God. Because hundreds of years before, the people of God sinned against God, and as discipline, God gave them over to slavery, and they got moved out of their land. They're no longer owning their land, having their fruit, having their jobs. They now are under submission to everyone else in this nation. Until God sent Moses to free the people of God from this enemy nation. And God rescued the people through walking through the Red Sea on dry land, escaping this enemy nation. And who was the enemy nation? Egypt. And now, hundreds of years later, Israel is going back to Egypt, the land God rescued them from, to try to find refuge, to try to find protection. And here is God saying, you stubborn children, I saved you from Egypt, and now you're running back to Egypt. How can they hold you up? How can they hold you secure? What happened last time you were in Egypt? You're enslaved. The Lord speaks here in both of these passages, and he's lamenting. He's hurt that they make an alliance with Assyria, or with Egypt for Assyria, rather than seek out the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Rather than ask God to guide them and protect them, they pull out their maps to get to Egypt. They seek refuge and protection from something lesser than God, and so God acts. God will cause the downfall of Egypt to show that they should not trust in something lesser. God will allow Assyria to overtake many of the cities of Judah to show them 
that you will fail on your own. Egypt will fail. Judah will fail. Everything fails except God. And when we turn to other things, when we put our weight on other things besides God, it will crumble, it will fail, and we will find ourselves worse off than we were before. And yet there's an encouraging phrase. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18 has this beautiful phrase. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. The very God that Judah rejected again and again, he is there waiting to unleash his grace upon them, to protect them, to keep his promises. And though they're turning to Egypt, something lesser, something they can't fully trust in, God is there graciously waiting for them to come to him. But what do we do? when we find ourselves in a situation like Judah, when maybe we're facing something big and dark, where do you turn? What's your instinct when troubles hit you? Is it to run to God or is it to pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps and think you are smart enough or wise enough or you've been successful enough that you can manage on your own? Or maybe we run in the face of trouble and stress to something to cope with, like alcohol. We drink ourselves heavy to forget the issue that's going on. When we turn to find comfort or refuge in something that God doesn't want us to turn to, we are opposing God. We are saying to God that we find more refuge and more protection in these things or in those people than Him. That God is not sufficient or strong enough to care for us in our time of need. And Christian, when we turn to a sin, whether it be pornography or alcohol or pride to seek security or distraction, or fulfillment, or protection in times of trouble, we are just like Judah. Running back to Egypt, the very thing we were saved from. We run back to the very things that kept us enslaved, that Christ had to die for. We have everything we need in Jesus. He died for these things. He resurrected and conquered our sin. And now we're set free, and yet we are so tempted to go back into Egypt and not trust in God. We become our own object of trust, and there we are cowering, trying to protect ourselves from the world. And God says, I'm waiting for you. Maybe you remember those, those drills in, in school where you had to climb under your desk if a tornado came or an attack came. Looking back at that, we looked pretty foolish. I don't think that little desk is going to protect you from a tornado or from some traumatic event. And yet, under a desk, you may feel a little more secure, right? There's at least something there protecting me. But in reality, we look like a bunch of kids just cowering in fear, and those deaths probably won't actually help us. That's what we do spiritually when we run to things to protect us or give us happiness or give us protection when troubles come. 
We might find this little thing and we might feel good about ourselves, but in reality, we just look foolish, cowering under a small desk. When in reality, God is waiting graciously for us to say, I will protect you. I will care for you. And if you're here and you're seeking freedom from all of life's troubles without God, I pray that this is a warning to you. That if you continue to live your life apart from Jesus, you will end up in the end lacking everything you desired. Now, you may have fun in seasons of life. You may accumulate wealth and possessions. You may become the biggest expert in your field. And yet, when it comes down to it, there is nothing trustworthy about money or success because in one single moment, every single thing that you worked for or you've achieved or you accumulated can be taken from you. And in reality, when you die, it will not be going with you. Do you ever see a hearse pulling a U-Haul? All that you've done apart from Christ is untrustworthy and untransferable to eternity. What is it that you can trust? Just how Judah lost their cities and their land to Assyria, we too, without trusting in God, will lose it all when we stand before a holy God. So in times of trouble, whether it be a circumstance or a sin, we shouldn't turn to ultimately trusting in something else besides God. That's the wrong answer. But what God does here, though, with His grace, is He shows us what the right answer is to do in any situation. The right answer, point three, is to fully trust in God. Even when you are going through life, and you have no idea what to do. You get to a situation, you don't know how to handle it, you don't know what your next step to do is, or you're surrounded by pain after pain, you can still, in that moment, trust in God. Though Hezekiah sinned deeply by making some alliance with Egypt, he eventually realized his mistake, and he turned the nation around he turned to God for trust, and God received him with joy and grace. I want to read a couple more passages here out of chapter 37. If you'll turn there, chapter 37, look at verse 14. Just before this passage that we read, Hezekiah receives one more intimidating, taunting email from the enemy king, saying, we're going to come in and destroy you. And I'm imagining Hezekiah reading this letter, and his hands are shaking in fear. Because he knows he's about to get destroyed. He's going to die. His people are going to die. Israel and Judah will be no more. But what does he do in that moment of despair? Look at verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, which are angels. You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You've made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, 
The kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Before, when Hezekiah heard of the Assyrian army coming, he ran to Egypt. He made an alliance. He trusted in a nation. But now, he falls on his knees. He doesn't go towards Egypt. He falls down, and he trusts in the Lord. He doesn't look to Egypt. He looks to God, and he sees God rightly. He sees his own weakness. He finally rests the weight of his problem upon God. We're going to look at a couple words of this prayer in a moment. But I want to show you one more set of verses here in this chapter, in verse 33. After Hezekiah runs to God, God does something amazing. Look at chapter 37, verse 33. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it, for my own sake, and for the sake of my servant David. Verse 36, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, Adramelech and Shirzir, his sons took, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarashan, his son, reigned in his place. God declared to Hezekiah, the king Sennacherib, the enemy king and his army, will not step one foot into Jerusalem. Not even an arrow will come into the city limits. God will protect them. And not only that, God will execute his justice on the king of Assyria. The right answer was for Hezekiah and his people to fully trust in the king of the world. Not the king of Egypt, not the king of Assyria, but the king of the world. Now there are three things here that Hezekiah does that I think we need to do. Three things that demonstrate and live out our trust in God. So whether you're fighting a sin or a conflict, you're going through a divorce, you have cancer, whatever it is, these are three things to do to trust fully in God. If you say, I want to rest my entire weight on God, I think from Hezekiah we learned three things to do. First of all, remind yourself who God is. Remind yourself who God is. Hezekiah was so worried about how big and strong and mighty Assyria was. But now he reminds himself of how big and strong and mighty the king of the world is. In his prayer in verses 15 and 16, he prays with a huge view of God. He says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the angels, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of earth. Hezekiah remembers, oh yeah, my God is king over Assyria. 
My God is king over Egypt. My God's king over me. If I have the king of the world on my side, why would I fear Assyria? Friends, we become so overwhelmed and so anxious over the circumstances of life, and they can be hard and big and painful. And yet if we do not stop in those moments to remind ourselves of who God is, then we are going to drown under the weight of despair. The more you know the character of God, His power, His mercy, His eternality, His love, the more stable and secure you feel when the world is shaking below you. So read your Bibles. Look for those passages that describe the goodness of God, His holiness, His power, His love, how He cannot be taken down because you're going to feel like you can't hold it together. And guess what? You can't hold your lives together. But in those moments, you can remind yourself of the nature of God, the character of God. Preach to yourself who God is. And when we do that, we're going to be like Hezekiah, and we're going to be reminded that the world does not revolve around us. That we don't have to be paralyzed by our fears and our problems. When I begin to think about God, my heart and my eyes become enthralled with the beauty of God and His glory, and His glory and His perfection go up top, and that overshadows my troubles. They're still there, but I'm so enthralled with God that my problems and issues and anxiety does not define me. But God and His glory and the fact that He has me, that defines me. And I have Him and His power and His mercy and His eternality, and He will take care of me. Even in cancer and even in loss, He is trustworthy. Look to Him. It's like when you take your your young kids to the doctor. It's one of those hard appointments where they have to get their shots. And what you do is, they're about to get the shot, what you do is you distract your children, right? You make funny faces, you bring toys, you talk to them in that weird child baby voice that we all do with kids for some reason, and you try to distract them from what's about to happen. Now, we need to do that in times of trouble for us. We need to consume ourselves with the character of God so that as we're getting the shot or the pain or the troubles of life, we are so consumed with God that that's where our focus is. Yes, we still feel pain. Yes, we still go through hardship. But no longer does that shot or that pain define us. We are gazing our soul and our spirit at the beauty of God. And we can live through pain and trouble and not lose hope and not lose happiness because our eyes are fixed on something that cannot be moved. So you need to remind yourself of who God is. So look throughout your Bible for those passages. One pastor, Robert Murray McShane, he said, every time you look at yourself, take 10 more looks at Christ. Let Him define you, not yourself or your pain. The second thing to do in times of trouble are to take the promises of God to the bank. Take the promises of God to the bank. Not only did Hezekiah remind himself of who God was, but he firmly planted himself in the promises and the words 
of God, right? Hezekiah was so fearful that Assyria was going to come into Jerusalem and overtake him. But then God speaks these encouraging words. Assyria won't step one foot into the city. Assyria won't even shoot an arrow into your city. And after that moment, Hezekiah was able to trust the words of God. Because if God says, Assyria will not attack, guess what? Assyria will not attack. If God says, Assyria won't even shoot at you, guess what? They won't even shoot at you. So Christian, this Bible is a treasure mine for you. As you read it and you see these promises of God that are for you, then they are yours. When you read your Bible, you are doing a treasure hunt in your own backyard. It's yours to claim. It's yours to have. There are promises here and you can take them to the bank. So when God says, I will give you rest if you are weary, guess what? He will give you rest. When God says, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, he says that you can even have cancer or go through that divorce or sit front row at a funeral and God will give you everything you need to give him glory. He will give you strength to endure what you're going through. Every promise of the Bible given to you is yours. So let the promises of God define you and not the problems of this world. So memorize verses, know the promises of God and preach them to yourself. But third and finally, the last thing Hezekiah did in the face of trouble was he prayed and saw God work. Pray and see God work. He bowed his knees, he bowed his soul before God and ran to him because God is the one who acts and delivers and rescues. And God loves when we come to him. Again, Isaiah 30, 18 says, God waits to be gracious for us. When we approach God in prayer with our needs and our weaknesses and our limitation, God loves to act and to respond and to do something. Throughout the entire Bible, we see God acting on behalf of praying people. Prayer is the way to humbly say, God, I don't have this. I don't know what to do. I'm drowning in this trouble. I feel sick. I need help. But God, I don't have this, but you have this. And God works when we pray. And that is why we pray. This morning, Mike Blake stood up here and he prayed. We don't pray just to say mere, nice, cordial words so that we feel good. We don't pray out of religious duty. We pray and we expect God to act. When Mike prayed for comfort for Greg Wallace as he lost his dad, guess what we expect God to do? To comfort Greg Wallace. When we pray that the gospel will go forth in France... What do we expect God to do as the church gathers and prays the word of God? We expect the gospel to take root in France. That's why we pray. We pray for you. We pray for those in our community because we know that when we humble ourselves, God acts. So that's why I want you to be here tonight at 6 o'clock. We pray. We lift up names. We lift up concerns. We lift up people. And we expect God to do things when the people of God pray. That's the main instrument that God uses to change things in our lives. 
So pray. Even when you feel like the phone line to God is disconnected, pray. God loves. He waits to act with his grace. So pray for healing. Pray for your wayward child. Pray for your lost neighbor. Pray for a cure for your depression. God will act. So remind yourself who God is. Take the promises of God to the bank and pray. And as we do these three things, we are reminded that we don't have to be defined by our problems. We have to remind ourselves that we're not in control, but God is, and that's a good thing, that life is not about us, that we are not defined primarily by my own happiness or my own health or my own money, but I'm defined now by the king of the world getting glory. My grandpa Paul loved his doctors. He trusted them with care. Yet he ultimately knew that his life was in the hands of God. And God took him. Bone cancer killed my grandpa Paul. And yet God took him for his own glory. And my grandpa knew that. My grandpa would say all the time that whatever befalls him in life is for the glory of God. And he died with absolute joy and contentment in life. Cancer may have killed his physical body, but God had his soul. Life for him was not about God's glory, or not about his own glory, but about God's glory. So he's not defined by whatever happened to him in life. He's defined by God, and he knew God would care for him. CBBC, we are going to face so much in our life individually, as a church, there will be ups and downs. There will be seasons. But the one thing that never changes is God. And he is our rock and our fortress and our deliverer. And no matter what befalls us in life, we have him. And his grip is pretty strong. He'll never lose us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this very morning, whether we are coming in here with great circumstances or poor ones, that we will trust fully in you to carry us through, as you always have. We pray that you will comfort those who are afflicted, you will humble those who are proud, and that we as a church will be a church who lives for your glory and has our, the gaze of our church upon you. We trust you, we love you, we need you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We please stand for the reading of our benediction. Now CVBC, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.